Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, I'm Susan Kalman, and welcome back to Susan Kalman's Mrs. Brightside. Thanks for downloading the show. taken a step back and I do use Twitter a bit more to sort of broadcast and then retreat mm-hmm. rather than I don't pick arguments with people anymore um, and sometimes I, you know I log into Twitter at like 4pm on a Sunday when I've had a lovely weekend and there'll be two journalists having a fight that's clearly gone on all day and I do sort of think well that was your weekend that was your way of spending Sunday I mean my goodness mm-hmm. get some hobbies guys Last year I spoke to eight people about their tricksy mental health and this year I'll be chatting to eight more. I genuinely worry that if I... There's nothing bad in my head, but I worry if I talk about genuinely how I feel sometimes... People will take it too seriously. Absolutely. Absolutely. So instead I make light of it. Going, no, I'm not as ill as I said I was. Absolutely. If you say some of the things and thoughts in your head, you can't take that back. I'm doing this because I want people to be more open about their mental health and I know sometimes it can be difficult to define what that means. So we're going to be having a frank and open discussion, no parameters, no written questions, no definitions and no pop psychology. It's important for you to know that these are not therapy sessions. I am not a qualified psychiatrist, no matter how much casualty I've watched. They're just honest conversations about what we think and feel about our own heads. This week I spoke to Isabel Hardman, a journalist who I wasn't afraid to talk to, which makes a change. We talked about everything you can possibly imagine, but mostly wasps. Um, So Ben's going to start recording. Have you started recording? Oh, you're recording? Now that's how Ben likes to do things. Um, um, Thank you very much for coming along. I should say you've, you've rushed here. People in podcasts like to hear that. Yep. You've rushed here from Hot from the news from Westminster <laughs> itself. Yeah, and it's late for your podcast. But can you ever really be late for a podcast? That's the question. I think I podcasts, like that question. Podcasts just happen. I think <laughs> mm. whenever. That's why I enjoy. You do a podcast, don't you? Yes, we do. Yeah, yeah. Coffee house shots. We do lots of uh, chin wagging about politics. We got a uh, an email through to our address the other day saying. Um, for safety reasons, please keep Ms. Hardman off the podcast, which I quite liked. I thought if I'm a danger to the public through podcasts, That's then gloriously I'm really non-specific, right. yeah. isn't it? <laughs> Why all those these things I'm advocating on the politics podcast? God, how dangerous! <laughs> DIY advice, you know, electrical. <laughs> That's amazing. It's why I mean, I just I love podcasts. The bits. The bits that aren't planned. That's why I don't have any questions for you. And for, I'm not sitting with a notebook in front of me because I love those bits. And I do. People take the piss out of it. But I do love Laura Coonsberg on Brexit cast. Mm. She's so inappropriate. Mm. The one where she was getting direct, giving the taxi driver directions and she basically told everyone where she lived. Oh, God. Just at least the left of the tube station and just and it was like, Laura. What are you doing? Hod back a bit, love. Um, so to start with, what I always like to do is ask people to introduce themselves and say what you think you do. So I'm not trying to attempt to describe what you do. So please introduce yourself to the millions of people listening to this podcast. So I'm Isabel Hardman. I'm the assistant editor at The Spectator. So I'm a political journalist. I'm based in the House of Commons full time. Uh, I've written a book called Why We Get the Wrong Politicians. Uh, But I'm also very, very interested in mental health uh, because a few years ago, I had a mental breakdown and uh, I've just finished writing a book about mental health and the great outdoors. Oh, right. Yeah. Super. Yeah. Um, One of the questions, this actually leads on from Laura Koonsberg, oddly. They did an episode of Brexit Cast, which I found fascinating, which was about the mental health of people currently dealing with Brexit. Yeah. And by that, I mean the MPs and the journalists as well. Yeah. a lot of people are oh, fed up with people talking about Brexit, blah, blah, blah. There are real people having to deal with mm. what's happening. Yeah. What is it like from a journalist point of view and also from what you're seeing of what's happening within Westminster just now? 
Yeah, firstly, I think on MPs, it, it, it's a culture shock because a lot of the time when you're an MP, you vote as your party tells you to. And people listening to this podcast will be saying, well, that's ridiculous, you know, but why can't they think for themselves? There is a lot in that. But also people come together in political parties in order to achieve stuff. So it kind of figures that you're then, once you're in that party, you're going to vote with the party. With Brexit, a lot of the decision-making is individual. So MPs in, say leave-supporting constituencies are having to work out what their voters want from them versus what they think might be good for their constituency because a lot of MPs campaigned for Remain and obviously the country voted to leave. And so you've got MPs who think that leaving the European Union is going to damage their constituencies, but their constituents are very, very angry that Brexit hasn't happened yet. And uh, I've been to public meetings where... You know, you've had uh, voters shouting at their MP because Brexit hasn't occurred, even when the MP isn't in the governing party. People storming out. There was one public meeting I went to where clearly the guy, uh, one of the guys who'd come along, had planned to storm out at some point, and he'd left it a bit late. And it was a sort of the roundup bit, and the MP was asking people to vote on what they wanted, whether it was no deal or to remain. And uh, this chap took exception to the questions that were being asked and stormed out. And you could see that he just looked at his watch and thought, oh, God, I haven't stormed out yet. I've just got to do it now. <laughs> and off he went. So everything's very sort of febrile in the constituency. And then in Parliament, you're having to decide what to do on this really historic issue. And I think it's really discombobulated MPs. And, you know, people might not feel particularly sorry for them that they're actually being forced to do their job a little bit harder than... than Normal, But the atmosphere of abuse, MPs being followed around Westminster, I quite often when I'm cycling out of Parliament in the evenings, hear men across the street, and it has, I have to say it is mostly men, shouting abuse at people like Anna Subri as they're walking down, shouting, she's a traitor, and all that kind of thing. And um, if that doesn't affect you, then... There's something quite wrong, actually. Then you, then we don't want there. MPs who are thick-skinned, yes. like you rhinos, don't want a, You do don't we? want a sociopath who's not touched by Absolutely. anything that happens to them, although no. some would argue. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I, what I find interesting, politics and comedy are similar in many ways. Uh, one of them is the use of language, mm. because the language that we use as comedians makes a huge difference. In terms of telling a joke, you can change a joke just by changing a word. Yeah. And in, in mental health terms, and it's this isn't about politics. So if you're listening to this and thinking, "Oh God, it's a Brexit discussion," it's not that. This is about the effect of what's happening. Mm, mm. So for me, I am disturbed at watching videos of anybody being followed down the street and screamed at. Yeah, because that isn't that is a horrific thing to happen. Yeah. It's also not how you change anyone's mind, in no, my view. It's no, it's the least persuasive thing ever, isn't absolutely. it? Absolutely. But I, people often say to me, they genuinely do, why didn't you go into politics, Susan? Well, would you like to see a video of someone being screamed at? Yeah, yeah. And I, I just worry about that this is how debate is now, yep. is that I'm going to shout at you, yep. and you can listen to me or not, but I don't care, I'm going to scream at you. Yep. And yeah. it's vicious, actually. I think we've forgotten how to live together actually that there's not an acceptance that somebody is not going to change their mind just because you have a different view and that therefore it's somehow okay to not just get angry with them because I don't think there's anything wrong with with getting angry in in politics because there are things that that politicians can do which which should make us angry they can make horrendous mistakes that mess people's lives up you know you should be angry for instance about Grenfell Um, but when it gets personally vicious, when it gets personally vindictive, personally abusive, just because somebody has a different strain of politics to you, that's, as you say, it's not persuasive, but it's also, it attracts a certain type of person into politics because lots of normal people think, I can't be bothered with that. You know, I don't want to go through this. I don't want to put my family through this. Jess Phillips, the Labour MP, has had to install additional security measures at her own home after threats were made not against her, not against her husband, against her children. Which you just think, well, why would you be an MP? Where's the the benefit of that if you're frightened about your child's safety? It, It puts a lot of normal, decent people off. And I don't think that's good for our politics because you then get, as you say, people who either don't care about the fact that they're being threatened and abused and told that they're worthless the whole time, or you don't get sort of, you know, decent people going in. And that really worries me. 
one of the things that I think has changed dramatically about um, the current situation. I watched the the BBC did a fantastic documentary about Thatcher. I don't know if you saw oh, it. Which was, I mean, yeah. it was a really brilliant documentary. Yeah. Absolutely super duper, um, charting uh, her career and her rise and then her fall. And what was interesting was, um, obviously, we didn't have twenty four hour news, and there were about three journalists she knew. Yeah. What happens now with 24-hour news and social media is it's not just the MPs yep. who are being harassed. So, as a as a woman in, in the public eye, mm. I mean, I stay away from... I just post pictures of cats these days on Twitter to avoid anyone... You don't get into a cat fight over that, No, I, I don't, because my cat's the best cat, okay. so, you know. fine. Um, and I've spoken to a number of guests on this podcast about social media. It mm. is a necessary evil. Mm. That's the problem. People yeah. say, why don't you come off Twitter? Well, yeah, I quite like it. Yep. I find out things. Yep. And B, I need it. Yeah, you need it for work, actually. I get a lot of column commissions off the back of some random thing I've tweeted. Mm-hmm. So it's important for promoting the work that you've you've done as well. And as you say, you know, often news breaks first on Twitter, then appears on the websites a few minutes later. So you want to stay up to date. I have changed the way that I use social media hugely, actually, since, since I got ill a few years ago. Um... I've got really strict time limits on what times I go on it. So after 10pm, it just shuts off on my phone. Um, and I don't and I don't like that I've had to do this, but I don't actually see replies from people who I don't follow anymore mm-hmm. unless I click on my individual tweet. Um, and I know that I'm not in a particularly good place if I find myself scrolling through all the replies at the bottom of one of my tweets. And I'm really sad about that because I often miss a lot of insight from people who I just haven't come across before who I don't follow who've replied to me but the sheer sort of drumbeat of people saying you're worthless you're stupid you know all of this kind of it's not the kind of thing you could report as abuse but it's also not very nice to have it coming to you the whole time you start to believe it and so I thought well you know I I can probably do without this, particularly if you've got a mental illness, you've already got your head telling you that already. So I've really taken a step back and I do use Twitter a bit more to sort of broadcast and then retreat Mm -hmm. rather than I don't pick arguments with people anymore. Um, And sometimes, you know, I log into Twitter at like 4pm on a Sunday when I've had a lovely weekend and there'll be two journalists having a fight that's clearly gone on all day. And I do sort of think, well, that was your weekend. That was your way of spending Sunday. I mean, my goodness. Mm-hmm. Get some hobbies, guys. It's, um, I think, unquestionably... I mean, I started Twitter, I think, when it first started. Mm. I've had an account for a long time. Mm. And I've noticed a change in it. Mm. And also a change in... I think I've become, I've become very kind of um, blasé now... It still it still hurts, and the thing is, you don't want to. I don't want to admit it hurts me when people tweet horrible things yeah. about me because yeah. then you're giving them the power. But it does. Yeah. yeah, it does. But it's amazing how inured I am to someone saying, "You're shit, and you look like a fat dyke, or whatever it is," and you go, <laughs> "Yeah, oh well." Yeah, yeah, you get stuff you know, like, that, "Oh, you've put on weight," or when I came back from a lot of sick leave, "Oh, clearly the antidepressants have made you fat," yeah. and I was like. Well, I mean, my dress is still fit, but also, like, what does that matter? Because I, I was on talking about a John McDonnell's speech to the Labour Party conference, so even if I'd sort of put on 10 stone, it wouldn't make any difference to what I was saying. And But you do sort of go, ha! Yeah. And then you go home and think, OK, I'm still thinking about this. Yeah, and I think that's the thing that especially my wife says, it can ruin a whole day. Mm. If I log onto Twitter and I see one person has said something, it can mm. really affect me yeah. um, in a very negative way. And it's a it's a waste of a good life, yeah. <laughs> I think, yeah, sometimes. Well, I mean, who's going to have on their gravestone, like, excellent Twitter abuser? It's really not... Yeah, no, no. You know, life is a bit too short, I think. There are lots of other ways of wasting your time, I think. <laughs> <laughs> so tell me then about what happened then. You've you've alluded to it earlier on, but mm. talk me through what it is that, you, that happened. Um, so... Something really bad happened um, at the start of 2016. I mean, a bad thing had been going on for a very long time, but something particularly bad then happened, which I don't really want to talk about. Absolutely um, fine. And also, I don't think people really want to know about it either. It's sort of too miserable. Um, but that um, is the kind of thing that would have taken anyone a, a long time to get over. And my attitude has always been a sort of brought up with a really strong Protestant work ethic my attitude has always been work through your problems. Just, you know, if something awful is happening in your personal life, just do more work. Um, 
and to a certain extent, I think that helps. But probably when you're covering the Brexit referendum, the murder of an MP, and then three or four party leadership contests, all in the space of about six months, while you're trying to deal with just, you know, all hell breaking loose in, in your own life, actually, that's just too much. It's a bit like, um, you know, we don't put ourselves through that much physical strain, do we? You wouldn't try to run a marathon up Snowden with a broken leg. Everyone would say you were nuts. But actually, we, we pride ourselves in trying to damage ourselves by working through, working, well, not even working through our problems, just ignoring our problems and just slamming ourselves in the office. And so I just started to react weirdly to things. And I was getting much more emotional. I was finding it harder to get through the day. I was finding it hard to concentrate. And I'd been at The Spectator for four or five years by this point. I'd been in Parliament since 2011. Loved my job, loved working hard, and suddenly I just, I couldn't do it. I couldn't, um, I couldn't think in sentences. Um, I started to get really suicidal. Um, started to hurt myself. It just a really hard time, and I wasn't sleeping. Kept going, kept going, kept going, and then at the Conservative Party conference in 2016 in Birmingham, um, that was when I broke down. I, I, I couldn't write anymore, and that was pretty weird because you know, all my life I've just been able to churn stuff out and uh, I was trying to write the email briefing that we send off every evening that analyses what's gone on that day everyone reads it you know, the Prime Minister reads it and everyone else in Westminster does too and I wrote one sentence in like an hour and in the end just had to message a colleague going you're going to have to take over I just can't do this and then I had emergency treatment and then went off work so um and eventually it was worked out that that was PTSD, which kind of makes sense um, given what had happened and given that actually a lot of the features of being sick have involved flashbacks to bad things happening and feeling like I'm back in that situation again and sort of being unable to move on with my life. Mm -hmm. So, uh, yeah, that's what happened. <laughs> well, I mean, the thing is about about depression, that specifically the PTSD mm. um, from incidents and one of the symptoms of depression that people don't, necessarily know is that scattered thinking yeah so in the the book that i wrote about depression one of the things i suggested is ask if you, if you know someone who's got depression ask them if you can do something for them and by that i mean post a letter the impossible do, task because sometimes yeah. when you've got when you're in the middle of it you can't even go shopping because no. you don't know what to do no. everything is too much yep. for you absolutely that sometimes when people have depression the very simple things help the most. Totally. I've got a basket full of stuff over there. Can you just deal with it? Yeah. So that I'm not then worrying about it. Yeah. And it's one of the kind of strange symptoms that sometimes people don't realise. It's not all sitting under a rain cloud on your sofa crying. No. That's no. not actually necessarily... No. It's one of the symptoms of yeah. depression, but they come in many forms, don't they? And actually that symptom, that sort of deep sadness, uh, that sort of bleak feeling... It's, it's horrendous and all-encompassing, but for me, it hasn't been the worst. It's it, it's been the impossible task, the the inability to do the things that I, I normally don't even think about doing. You know, my job, or as you say, the really basic stuff. Um, and I always know when my mental health is starting to wobble again, because I stop bothering to do my hair and. I don't wear matching clothes and I end up at home more and stuff and I just end up, I mean, we all end up with sort of home workers' hair, don't we? And like bizarre tracksuit bottoms that are our yes. kind of favourite working yeah. from home clothes. Mm -hmm. um, but when I get stuck in that and I start just eating cereal, those are the signs because actually the idea of cooking something seems impossible. Mm -hmm. And it's, I mean, I'm sorry, I use, we talked about language at the start of this podcast. I use the words like mad and crazy and nuts to talk about myself because I find that, separates my symptoms from who I actually am from my kind of intrinsic Isabel and then the sort of the mad ill stuff so it's not I don't start thinking that's that's me um but it, it it's mad the the distinction between healthy Isabel who you know can do a full day you know I started really early this morning I did the day program I've done PMQs I've sort of bounced from thing to thing to thing haven't thought about it and then sick Isabel who's mega impressed that she's got up and put moisturiser on. Yep. And if you haven't had a mental illness, even if you're incredibly compassionate, it's very hard to understand how someone's mind can flick between those two 
different states and seems so capable at some times and then at other times it's just you, you, you know you can't think and so you can't do I think really hard I, for me I'm a I may have a control issue or two I like to control everything <laughs> and to me it staves off the anxiety and depression yeah. and I've got lists everywhere uh-huh. lists and lists and lists and my wife it's taken my wife a long time to understand why I need to do things so I've got lists and she said we'll do it tomorrow and I say no can we just do it now because if we do it now I cross it off my list and it's done Yeah. because if we, if we don't do it now because she's very easy Ozzy we'll wake up tomorrow and you'll go we'll do it another day and then it'll never get done and I feel anxious yeah. I'm the same about, about unpacking hats I just moved house and my partner was like oh we can sort those boxes out another time no mm-hmm. because if we don't sort them out now then bad things will happen and mm-hmm. actually the bad thing that would have happened was we would have just shoved the boxes into a corner but yes <laughs> but it's the same it's the same kind of effort, as I say for me I try and stave off the triggers for my anxiety mm. and one of them is controlling everything mm. everything mm. It, I'm at my happiest if the fridge is full and I've planned every dinner for the week. Now, people listening will think that sounds boring or awful. That's, for me, it's happiness. Yeah. Then I know what I'm doing. Yeah. Then I don't need to think about it. Yeah. And it's done. Have you ever done the, what's the worst that could happen, though? Because part of my yeah. therapy, actually, there was, um, yeah, I, I, I can get really obsessed with perfection, actually, particularly in the way I appear to other people and sort of performance. Um, and having people around for dinner can be a real source of stress for me because I want to like cook everything you know I make beautiful bread and then have a pudding and you know it's like five courses and everyone can't move by the end of it and I sort of feel like I've performed well and I remember having people around for supper when I was unwell and having an entire counselling session on the fact that I was going to have to buy pudding um you know what a load of money that I spent on this like not buying pudding situation but I was mega stressed out because I was like, you know, they'll think I haven't made an effort for them. And the counsellor said, well, what's the worst that could happen if you go to M&S after this session and you buy a lemon tart? And I sort of sat there flabbergasted, like, you know, there was sort of all these scary thoughts raining in my head. And then I thought, well, I guess I'll eat it. And it's amazing when you break down the what's the worst that could happen. My therapist got slightly annoyed at me. Um, <laughs> I recently went back into therapy again after after recognising, I re- I thought, mm, you need to go in for a wee top-up, Susan, you know. It's and when others say it to you that it's even worse because well, yeah, you're like, how yeah. badly behaved have I been? Yes, yes. My wife was starting to make some noises and I thought, yeah, yeah, all right, OK. <laughs> and she did that because uh, apparently I catastrophise life. Yeah, that's me too. Yeah, whatever. <laughs> and I was like, my well, so I was like, why do you always say blah blah blah? Anyway, so my therapist tried the what's the worst that could happen with me, and she got very frustrated because it was it was you know what's the worst could happen? I said, oh, people won't like me or whatever it was, and she said, well, is that so bad? And I went, yes, that is awful. Yeah. So I'm not quite at the stage yet of acknowledging that that's not a terrible thing. Yeah. Because I still think that is a terrible thing. Yeah. So. I've I've definitely got better at that over... That's not me saying that I haven't got a thousand other things that therapists need to deal with, but the people won't like me thing, I have got a bit better at just thinking, oh, what the hell, like, other people like me, so it doesn't matter so much. My dog likes me. (laughs) My cats are indifferent towards me, but, you know... Apart from when there's food. Yes. And then suddenly you are God. (laughs) It's one of those things, though, that some people I don't care about... But some people I really care about. Yeah. And they're random people as well, yeah. aren't they? Who, who sort of, they can be quite peripheral to your life, but suddenly you want their good opinion and that's all that matters. The other thing that I think people sometimes struggle with if, they don't, if they've never been in a headspace similar to this is, I, the other day, woke up in a cold sweat about something that I'm pretty sure I said 12 years ago to somebody. Oh, yeah. I have that as well. When and I'm just, yeah. I've actually become slightly obsessed by this particular incident, and it's nothing. It's really nothing. Yeah. But I've become slightly obsessed with what happened that time. Yeah, and I think we all get those sort of. I don't think flashbacks is the right word because it's sort of got associations with proper PTSD flashbacks. But we have those moments where we look back to something really stupid we did say, where we really put our foot in it with someone. And I think we all do that, but I think. With mental illness, you can end up fixating mm-hmm. upon that and sort of wanting to atone for it in a way that becomes very damaging to your sense of self. Because ultimately, we're all doofuses. And 
part of learning to like ourselves is learning to live with our bad bits as well and the sort of messes we've made as opposed to sort of you don't I, I've realised recently that I don't want to be one of those people who goes into therapy and say, says you know this person did this bad thing to me this person did this bad thing to me and never think about the fact that actually I've been quite selfish at times in my life and I've hurt people too and coming to terms with that has been quite helpful as well because it's made me realise that sometimes there are reasons for people not to like me. Well, yes, that, that, I suppose that's... Yes, that is, and it's got nothing to do with pudding. I mean, it's, it's possible that I've become unpopular for other reasons. Possible. But I've got to the extent of being so paranoid about what I say mm. because it, I, 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 I'm such a forceful personality that some people don't take to me. And I was, it was actually on the Strictly tour. So I was on the tour with all these people. They're very much, they, I love them, but they're very much out with my comfort zone. Mm. Dancers and celebrities and everything else. I had a bracelet made, which I wore on the tour, that had letters um, S-T-F-U on it, which is for shut the fuck up. For me. It wasn't for them, it was for me. So that every time I thought about saying something... I looked at the bracelet and I didn't say anything. That's so that very I did, So I didn't have any of those experiences that I would then look back at and think... But I silenced myself yeah. to a certain extent. Yeah. Which was an extreme. Oh, going to extremes. What a strange thing for someone with a mental illness to yeah. do. <laughs> to try and protect myself. Yeah. And that's not good, is it? And often... I think, mine, for me, one of the things that I find hardest is... The way I relate to people who are close to me, I can often overwrite that with things that have happened in the past to the extent that it really hurts them. So um, one of the features of PTSD that I've found and that lots of people around me have found really surprising is anger. I've never really been an angry person until I got ill, but my God, I've been angry since then. And it's not the sort of, you know, the righteous anger about what happened. It's often random flare-ups of anger with people who are entirely innocent. So, you know, one of my best friends, Alice, who I lived with at university, was just trying to look out for me one evening and made some suggestion. I went absolutely nuts at her. Um, and she sort of backed away. And then the next day I thought, Alice was just giving me some advice. And I shouted at her and I felt terrible. And it happens with my partner the whole time that... I can go absolutely mad at him and accuse him of all sorts of things. I've accused colleagues of plotting against me, which is so embarrassing because it's one thing saying that to your partner and then you sort of, you know, have a gin together and make up and you relax. But with colleagues, there's, there's always a slight separation in your relationship. And to introduce that level of madness into a working relationship, I still haven't quite come to terms with the damage that my illness has done in that sense, actually. Um and I know that I've sort of irreparably damaged some relationships, or my illness has anyway. But, but that that sort of sense of rising anger is something I'm still desperately trying to control because it can just end up with me sending, particularly sending angry messages to people going, "Oh fuck you" and all that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And I wasn't even very sweary until three years ago, and now I'm like the sort of trooper, but not in a good way. <laughs> um, my anger is always directed towards me. I was it okay. always. It's okay. very rarely directed towards anyone else. It's always myself, which is a very. It's a very. That's why my escapes exercise. I box. Oh, do you? Yes. Ah, see, my counselor kept saying to me, "You should take up boxing." So I do a lot of sports. She was like, "You got a lot of anger there. You need to deal with that." But it's amazing. But do you feel? I'd feel really bad about hitting someone, or I'd like hit no, them I've wrong. No, I've got. Uh, no, no, no. I've got. Uh, well, you got punch bags. I started with a personal trainer. Okay. He's getting paid the, to be the, hit, the so that's okay. Things. Yeah. And I got a punch. I've got a punch bag in my garage, and when I feel it starting, I go down. I put on the gloves and I punch the punch bag for a while. Really punch that punch bag in the privacy of my garage. <laughs> I swear. I shout. I kick it. I do whatever, and then it's gone. That's great. So it's very, it's a very, it's a very private thing, actually. Yeah, yeah, because you sort of need to let it all hang out, don't you? Basically, and so much of our life is us controlling mm -hmm. where we are. Even when we're in sort of a mental health crisis, there are times when I've sort of sat on the tube, feeling like I've got this like catch over me, where you know I'm a bulging cupboard, and if you just unlock that catch, suddenly we go. Mm -hmm. Whereas 
actually having that private space where you can just let out your anger mm-hmm. is really rare. Yeah, and it's it's genuinely one of the one of the best things of just. And I was doing it first of all with my personal trainer, and I liked it anyway because it's good exercise. And then he said, "Can you think of someone that you really you're angry about?" Okay. And I could, I could, yeah. And he said, "Think of that person's face and the difference." was Gosh. incredible and I could only keep going for about 10-15 seconds yeah but the way you feel afterwards because you feel like you've expended all the negativity in a positive way wow so I I, I mean for me exercise is, is it and I also uh, weight lift oh do you Deadlifting. oh because when you've got the weight and you think about the thing I think about the whatever's in my head and I channel it all into the anger and aggression yeah. of lifting the weight and then it's gone See, for me, running fast and hard does do some of that, but the the punch bag idea, actually, I do find really, really compelling. And one of the things that I have found really, really helpful um, in my sort of exercise regime, which that makes me sound a bit like a sort of Instagram influencer who has, like, you know, green juice at six in the morning and then yoga, but I do try to do some kind of vigorous exercise every day, even if it's just cycling into work, just because I find it, it really keeps my mind in a better place, but... The most effective thing for me is cold water swimming. Oh, my God. It's, it's made such a difference. I mean, okay. I do loads of running. I did the marathon this year. Love running. Um, that makes a huge difference. Lots of people talk about that. But um, I signed a contract to write a book on nature and mental health. And I had a whole chapter in the plan about cold water swimming. Hated swimming when I was at school. I used to bunk off the whole time. I used to forge sick notes. I had a period that lasted a month because I had a male teacher, and so I knew he wasn't going to question right, it. Okay, so yeah, mm-hmm. yeah um, I just hated, hated, hated chlorine. It made my face go all itchy. I just hated the whole thing. Um, and uh, then I'd signed this contract to write a book that involved swimming, and so I thought, right, I've just I've just got to go and do it because I'd read loads of stuff about the impact that the cold can have on you. Um, and I can't believe the difference it's made. Really? It's, yeah, really. I mean, in the winter when there's ice on the water and the water is like one or two degrees, what it does, not just physiologically, but psychologically, is incredible. And it, it, there's lots of research that says it actually helps you to tame your fight or flight response. And so if you've got PTSD where you've got a lot of fight going on because you've got so much anger and you've got a lot of flight because you're freaked out as well, that's really, really useful. And if you think about it, you get into water that's got ice on it, bloody cold. And I just do it wearing a swimming costume and then five millimetre gloves. Um, and you have this kind of shock and you sort of go, oh! and then you have to learn to get going and to swim. And so by taming that physical fright, you start to tame the mental fright of the water. And I have found that I've coped with situations that would have sent me bananas about a year ago, much better because of that swimming. And so this winter I was swimming at least three times a week throughout the winter. You know, the colder it got, the happier I was basically because of what it did for my mind, for that shock. And you feel so alert but calm for the rest of the day. It wakes you up, but it stops you from feeling like your head is... um, you know those sort of old Wild West films where there's like cowboys and Indians running at each other in double speed? That's often what my mind feels like when I'm not in a good place. But the swim just slows it all down. So it's on, you know, it's more ponies plodding around happily in a field instead. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. 
fact. It's funny because the reason I like... I like to do exercise that's so vigorous and horrific, I feel like I'm going to vomit. <laughs> I like. I mean, I like That's it. what I like about running, I, I like actually. It, I, like it, I like it really, really bad. Yeah. I do a class called Grit Cardio. Oh, my goodness. My do you all take, like, Instagram selfies before it? <laughs> Absolutely not. <laughs> and it's, I mean, it's, it's the most horrific thing. I mean, it's just horrible. <laughs> but for that 30 minutes or an hour... My mind is still because all I'm concentrating on is not dying. Yeah, is the pain. Because yeah. I'm having to go, because I refuse to allow myself not to do that properly because then I'd be a failure and that's the worst thing in the world. <laughs> people wouldn't like you. People wouldn't like me if I was <laughs> If I couldn't, do my, if I couldn't do my great cardio <laughs> class properly, everyone would hate me. <laughs> um, and so I go for it and it's horrible. But for that, it's like a blessed relief. Mm. Yeah. For me, yeah, yeah. The only other time I feel that is if I get a really good podcast. That's why. Hey. I lo- that's why I love podcasts. Oh, are you saying that this podcast is so painful that you're not yes. thinking about yourself? No, if I find moment. a really good podcast, especially I love true crime. Pod- really I good do. True crime pro- I love a good. For true me, it's podcast. houseplant podcasts. Actually, yeah. yeah, that's my little guilty pleasure. <laughs> I l- I listen to an Agatha Christie one. It's amazing. Two Americans uh, read and read every Agatha Christie mystery novel. It's the most quaint beautiful oh that sounds really cute it is really yeah. lovely and it ha- every I think it's every Saturday or Sunday and it pops up and I go oh great and it's sparkling <laughs> cyanide or whatever and you just listen to two nice people talking about an Agatha yeah. Christie book and you get while. transported yeah yeah and it just takes you in a way that television doesn't anymore no because there's so much going on yep the and you end up phone fiddling when you're watching yeah. TV I've taken up knitting to stop phone fiddling right actually that's another reason I'm not doing much social media is I'm always like knitting a sock. In fact, one of my colleagues earlier was teasing me that at some point, if I get bored in a podcast, I'm just going to get my knitting out and start like <laughs> making a hat just to make a point. But but yeah, you get so distracted with TV that you're only ever half watching. Mm-hmm. Even if it's something really good like Killing Eve, mm-hmm. you're still on Twitter. How's your? I mean, I I. It's interesting because I went through my worst phase of depression, self harm, suicidal thoughts as a teenager. Uh huh. So I was about. 13, 14, 15, 16, about that time. And then for about 10 years after that, I didn't talk to anyone about it. Oh, that's because I was Because I was very frightened yeah. of telling it because it, yeah. it was so badly dealt with when I was 16 that I then decided to tell everyone I was well for 10 years. Right, yeah. And I wasn't well. Yeah. Because I'm the, the stigma of mental... It's not so much the stigma of mental illness. People don't know what the hell to do. No. They freeze, don't they? Yeah, people yeah. people absolutely freeze. Yeah, and let's be honest, I'm a comedian who can say that I have depression, and everyone's like, "I want another comedian with depression." Oh, yeah, yeah. When I was a lawyer, I don't think they would have dealt with it as well. And yeah. it is difficult yeah. when you do have something and you have to tell people yeah. about it. It is a difficult thing. Yeah, yeah, it is. I, I think I'm lucky in that you know I only got ill three years ago, and uh, in the years leading up to that. We just had an explosion of people talking about being ill. We'd had MPs in that amazing debate in 2012 talking about how they had OCD, yeah. and postnatal depression and so on. Particularly male MPs, actually. I think that made a huge difference, having the, Charles Walker and Kevin Jones talking about their mental illnesses because that's such a taboo is men talking about mental health. So I think the political world had um, had sort of become kinder. Um, but I think what where there is still a stigma is people will sort of make very supportive noises, be very sort of, oh, gosh, I'm so sorry, you know, it's terrible. I know my aunt has had depression, blah, blah, blah. But when it actually manifests itself in the way that mental illnesses do, beyond anything, you know, anything beyond crying, basically, people then don't like it because they're like, oh, not that kind of mental illness, not not when you're actually like, you know, when you're paranoid or when you're angry. They don't see that as part of your mental illness. They then get sort of freaked out, upset, take it personally, and so on. And I think if you talk to people for whom, you know, their mental illness has hospitalised them because they've got a psychotic illness, for instance, or something, you know, something like bipolar or schizophrenia um, or borderline personality disorder, those illnesses that are less well understood, slightly scarier symptoms, I think they feel the stigma has not lifted at all. People are okay about depression, 
but when it comes to anything that involves your mind kind of telling you things that aren't real. Yes. Which is a feature actually of anxiety and depression as well yes. and of PTSD. You know, <clears throat> the other night apparently I had a night terror where I said that someone from my past had broken into the house and apparently I went downstairs and had a look. I don't remember any of this. My partner was properly freaked out in the morning. He's fine with that, but a lot of people in the rest of the world are not so fine. Um, I think of someone who I know who had a psychotic breakdown recently. Lots of people kind of thought what he was doing was funny. It wasn't funny. He was really sick. <coughs> and they yeah. hadn't thought, actually, that's what people who are manic do because they're sick in the same way as if you've got a stomach problem, you vomit. <laughs> yes, absolutely. But people are less forgiving. You know, I, I say sorry so many more times because of what my mental illness has done than I would do if I'd thrown up on someone's shoes. I would still be very apologetic about that. But but you'd probably apologise and leave it. Exactly. Whereas I, I continually apologise. For years. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely for you. Absolutely. Yeah. And we have something in our house, Compliment Sunday. Where <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> my wife compliments me and I have to accept it. <laughs> and, and not apologise. <laughs> because I'm terrible at that. Because yeah. if you say... Oh, you're quite good. I go, well, you know, I'm not... I mean, there are better... There are people are better. And yeah. I have to, oh, you know. Yeah. And it's... Uh, what part, happens if you don't? Do you have, like, a swear jar? Um, it, she just keeps She just keeps making it she very clear going. that yeah. I have to accept the compliment. She's from Edinburgh. She can be quite intimidating. Um, so it's... I, I think my life... My life got better when I left law because I did feel that I could be slightly freer. Mm. Because I, I just... I think if I had a nine-to-five job, it, I'm fi- I'm actually very well now, and mm. I have been for a long time, mm. but in the times where I perhaps didn't want to leave the house, yep. or I was struggling, yep. especially when you'd work nine-to-five and then you have to do social events in the yeah. evening, it would have been quite difficult. Yeah, and I have, um, I've changed the way I work massively. I'm now self-employed, which has its upsides in the sense that I can decide what time I start, and if I want to work from home then I can. So I can carry on working. Whereas if I were in a nine to five office job, I wouldn't turn up and then I wouldn't work. But obviously, if you're self-employed, you don't get paid when you're ill. And um, sick pay actually comes from either your savings or in my case, an overdraft or a loan even. Mm -hmm. Um, But um, but yeah, I think I was in Actually, people say, oh, you know, Isabel, it's great that you've talked about your mental illness and it just shows how kind the world has become. And I think that is true. But I also think I was in a really privileged position anyway. You know, I'd been a political journalist for quite a while. I'd already had my first book deal. I'd won awards. Um, I I was about to say people knew who I was, but that makes me sound like Ron Burgundy from Anchorman. Like, people know me. Um, But I, I, I... like I had a sort of reasonable reputation. MPs knew who I was and I could, you know, I had contacts and stuff. And I, most importantly, my boss, Frozen Nelson at The Spectator, is one of the best managers I think you could find in the media um, by a country mile and was just really, really supportive and was happy for me to talk about not just the fact that I was mentally ill, but what mental illness meant to me rather than some bosses who'd be like, okay, crazy here's talking again about being crazy. You know, this is just too embarrassing for our brand. And he gave me extra time off um, and so on. So my experience doesn't really compare to what a lot of people I know go through where their bosses are sympathetic for six weeks and then are like, okay, you know, you this, must de- be better now. this depression has gone on for yeah. too long. <laughs> I've given you your allocated sick pay. Mm-hmm. And you can understand from the boss's point of view as well. It's tough because if you've got someone who keeps going off sick, they're starting to worry about the impact on their business. Um, but I don't, think it's, I don't think it's generally handled very well at all. And I think a lot of people feel that they can't be honest about their mental illnesses because they'll get sacked or they won't get promoted. They won't go any further. Yes. I think They'll I stagnate. Think my concern was always that if you opened up my personnel file, it would always have uh, she's a mad bitch written on the top of it. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Watch her. That's the, the other scissors. good thing about being self-employed is yes. it's just your own personnel file you yes. write about yourself. <laughs> I think as well, though, that for me, one of the major issues is finances. Mm. So I'm fortunate in that I can pay for a woman to listen to me talk for an hour. Yeah. Uh, and the big thing was, and I'm asked, 
consistently, oh, things are so much better, what with you talking about it and Stephen Fry talking about it, and you go, yeah, sure, okay, it's okay, yeah, it's yeah. okay. But if you genuinely, if you go, and I know I've got a lot of friends with a lot of issues, PTSDs and traumas yeah. and everything yeah. else, and, you know, and often see uh, on Facebook, that's me finally got my appointment after six, seven, eight months of waiting for yep. a specialist. Yep. So the issue is you pluck up the courage to say that you're not well. Yep. You manage to find a GP that will listen to you. No disrespect to GPs. You're under a lot of pressure. I'm not suggesting you're bad. Some of them are. Some of them are not great. Some of them are under incredible time pressures. And then you, wh- what happens after that? So you pluck up the courage. You talk yep. about yourself... And then if you don't have the finances, eight months later you might see somebody. Yeah. I mean, I, my GP said, look, do you have the money to go private for your therapy? Well, yes, I do. At that stage I had a savings account, which I then spent on my therapy. Um, and then when we were talking about a referral to a, psych- a psychiatrist to get a diagnosis of PTSD, do you have the money to go private for psychiatry? Because it will probably take maybe half a year to a year to get just your first appointment. And I had a mate who... Uh, his life was not going particularly well. Things were going badly for him mentally. He went for an assessment and they said, oh, well, things aren't bad enough for you yet, so we can't put you on our waiting list. Um, and in the three months after that, his life genuinely blew up. And I kind of think, well, you know, he's recognised there's a problem at quite an early stage, which is quite unusual for a lot of people, particularly, again, men. And then he's just been told he's not sick enough. So what? He should get sicker. He should make things worse. But that's I mean, that problem. genuinely happened no, to him. No, absolutely. I think. I think the problem is if you can't get seen by someone, it's then it's a crisis, and yep. then you're seen. Yeah. But you've got then to you're the in cri- hospital. But then you've yep. got the crisis situation now. Yeah. Specifically, when it comes to, I never want anyone to go through what I went through as a teenager. I mean, they're much better about young people's mental health. Yeah. But if you look at the stats for young boys in particular, mm. and the mental health issues and suicide rates. They're alarming. Mm. But again, you get your son to admit how he's feeling. You go to the GP. And it's almost like you've opened them up. You've sort of cut them open. They've got a wound there. And then you just leave it there festering. So in a sense, it almost feels worse when you've admitted how hard you're finding things. You've talked about your feelings, which for a lot of people can feel very raw and exposing. But then you're just left hanging. Mm -hmm. And... You know, I've talked to people who've said, I felt like the health service didn't think I was worth being treated, that I was, you know, not good enough even for the doctors. It's the lies that our depression tells us, but it's also reinforced by the way that mental health is funded and treated in this country. And I think the reason I get angry at Brexit is that while everyone's screaming about Brexit, Mm -hmm. there's a lot of stuff that we're not talking about. And that's the thing for me that's, that's, that's annoying, that for every... For every mo- another week where this is the focus of everything, yep. the other things are happening that and, we're not sorting. And there's an excuse for any prime minister to say, I'm a bit busy at the moment. You don't have to tackle the difficult issues because everyone sees you trying to tackle Brexit. Mm-hmm. And they're so preoccupied with how difficult that is that you get away with not doing as much as you should be doing. And I think, and you do not need to comment on this in the slightest, Isabel, that when... A- Prime Minister has used some of the worst language I've ever... No, not I've heard worse language about... I was say, aren't you from Glasgow? Yes. <laughs> about that I've heard a politician use about some members of the gay community. Yep. Um, given that the mental health amongst gay teenagers is not great. Yep. And child abuse as well. You know, Boris Johnson said, I'm very happy to comment on this. Oh, I great, OK, great. I didn't, I didn't know whether or not you <laughs> no, could... It's, yeah, yeah. No, it's fine. But, but, you know, Boris Johnson talked about the inquiry into child sexual abuse and he said that they had spaffed money up the wall. Yes. Which, it, it's not a very nice turn of phrase anyway, but it's so deliberately um, upsetting to people who've been abused. And... If you know anything about people who've been through particularly childhood abuse, but any form of, you know, domestic abuse, sexual abuse, rape and so on, actually very little things can set them off into a complete tumble of reliving what they've been through. And often the disbelief and casual treatment that they receive from people throughout the rest of their life, they say, can feel worse than the actual incident itself. And I find... 
Boris Johnson's lack of empathy on that really worrying that you can think that that's a funny word to use or that you can think that people won't notice you can think that you can get to that level in politics and not think um oh actually I think that might hurt some people. I don't really want to hurt people. Well, as, as some, I want to yeah. be funny. You know, you yeah. know how to be funny. Yeah. It doesn't necessarily need to involve beating up people who've had a really shit time. No, it doesn't at all. And I think the thing is, is the lack of knowledge that using a phrase like bum boys, yep. which I can virtually guarantee has been shouted at a poor boy somewhere as he's had the shit kicked out of him. Exactly. Somewhere. Exactly. Is a bad thing. I also just think it's a bit immature. I mean, come on, he's got an amazing command of the English language and several other languages as well. Can't he find, you know, a better a better use of language than something that he's heard at school? I think I think the reason I'm talking about that is that our parliament, our prime minister, the leader of the country, mm. if you like to put it like that, in a way should be somebody, I would hope, who would understand that if someone comes to them for a case for mental health for LGBTQ teenagers would go this is a good thing yeah whereas i think i think for, i think the concern for a lot of people who have empathy is it's already underfunded it's already marginalized yeah. mental health and especially for young people but generally you know a friend of mine had a postpartum psychosis proper psychosis which is terrifying and eventually went to speak to somebody about it and managed to get funding but it took a long time and that's a psychosis yeah caused not by her yeah Caused by the hormones in our body yeah. going absolutely crazy. Yeah. So for you, I ther- I still go to therapy. You go to do you go to psychologist, psychiatrist? What kind of so do I, you use? I'm actually not having any therapy at the moment um, for the first time in three years, and I'm just sort of seeing how that's going. At the moment, I feel like I'm okay. Yep. And I feel like I've got a good support network, and I feel like a, a lot of the things I learned in therapy have now become habits. But that's not to say that in a couple of years' time I won't feel ready to talk about some stuff that I found too hard in initial therapy. So in 2017, I came back to work at the start of 2017 and started doing um, psychotherapy. Um, And that was too much. It felt like I was paying a lot of money, a lot of money, to go every Monday at 5pm to sit in a room and be the most upset I'd ever been in my life for an hour. And I just knew, you know, 5pm Monday, that's where I'm going to be. And the way it opened me up for the rest of the week was just too much at the time. I was I was too acutely ill, actually. I needed to get my medication sorted. I needed to feel like there was stability in my life before I could start talking about really awful stuff from the past. So... It might be that I feel I can sort of deal with that as I go through life and as I jump into more lakes <laughs> with ice on. Absolutely. But it might be that I need someone to help me talk through that. And, you know, it's the same as it's the same as, as lots of things. I'm able to repressurize my boiler. I'm not qualified to install it and I'm perfectly happy to pay someone to come and do that. Yeah. And similarly, I'm able to sort certain mental things out myself, but I'm more than happy to get a professional to 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 work me through that I, for however long it takes. My issue is I, that I reach a level where I just I can feel physically I, I have to stop talking. Yeah, like I can't physically say the words. Yeah, I can't I can't physically say. Yeah, and so I went to a lovely therapist um, who left many years ago, and I thought I need to go again. I started with a new therapist, and I can't talk to her yet. I can't talk to her. What because, I mean, there were there were things that I didn't tell my therapist who I have for two or three years. I didn't tell her until about two and a half years in. See, I think it's going to... I don't trust her, you see. Yeah. It's not, it's not, it's you not, think they're suspicious. It's just no. that these are deep things, aren't yeah. they? Yeah. Yeah. And I've not told them to my wife or my family necessarily. Yeah. yeah. And suddenly you're expected to sit and go, OK, here's something, uh-huh. right? Here's something yeah. that I can barely admit to myself. Yeah. And I've only there just you met you. Yes. But would you like to... And I'm sitting in your living room. Yeah. Uh, would you like to... And yeah. I, I've just... I think actually the older I've got, the less... The less trusting I've got, so it's actually worse now than it was. Yeah, I think also it's funny, isn't it? Because you know that they're paid and trained not to be judgmental, but these things that you want to talk about are such that you are just terrified of their reaction, even when 
when you ultimately tell them? I'm ultimately terrified, being honest, of uh, being sectioned. I'm terrified of it. Okay. I'm terrified yeah. of it. Because when I was 16, I, I went into hospital and it was the worst experience of my life. I'm sure it's much better now. Yeah. But it was horrific. Yeah. And so were you, I, in, were you on an adult ward or were you on No, a, I was in, I was in a, the, the teen ward, but teen. everyone there was... I mean, I was, I was ill, but I wasn't very ill. And uh-huh. there were some very ill people there. Yeah. And you just kind of sit, like one flew over the cuckoo's nest going... Yeah. Jesus, what's going on here? Yeah. And I was so traumatised after that. And even now, I don't ever want to admit necessarily if I'm feeling down because I think they're just going to phone. They're going to phone up the, uh-huh. you know, the white van. Yeah. And off I go. Yeah. And then I'll never get out. Yeah. And my life's over. Yeah. So catastrophize you say Susan is that what you do <laughs> but I genuinely I genuinely worry yeah. that if I there's nothing bad in my head but I worry if I talk about genuinely how I feel sometimes people will take it too seriously absolutely yeah. Yeah. absolutely so yeah. instead I make light of it back from it going no I'm not as ill as I said I was absolutely and, yeah. if you say some of the things and thoughts yeah. in your head you can't take that back yes yeah things can't be unsaid and if you're still remembering stuff you said 12 years ago yeah and sort of eating yourself up over it you start to think, well, why would I, why would I open up another decade of horror? <laughs> it's a very strange. It's a strange thing, and often, when people listen to this podcast, you'll get messages from people saying that they have really identified with what people have said, and it's given them the courage to go and speak to someone. It takes a long time. This is the thing, mm. and it depends what piece you want to go at, mm. what your therapist is like, mm. what your support network is like. This is the yeah. thing. Another thing that I feel hugely fortunate for. I've got wonderful family and friends and lots of people end up being really isolated and not having that and mm-hmm. that's not their fault it's just i just got lucky basically i've just got nice people who have stayed in touch and so it's important yeah i always think it's important before you to just be kind to yourself yeah and to not be disappointed you're not cured after a week oh my gosh that was one of the biggest breakthroughs for me was when i came back to work initially I wanted to talk about how I was beating depression and I wanted to feel like I was on the road to recovery. And then every time I had a relapse, I would get so upset because I thought I'm not getting better. And now I've got to the stage where I actually think I'm probably always going to have this black hole inside of me, but I'm just going to get better at learning how to walk around it. And, you know, my therapy gives me the sort of the ordnance survey map of that and my medication keeps me from wobbling all over the place and falling in. And that has given me a kind of oh, an acceptance of my illness that has made me far less frantic about getting better. And I'm not saying that means I now suddenly go, oh, it's wonderful that I have these paranoid delusions and flashbacks. You know, they've contributed so much to my life. It's, it's more just that I'm not going to wish my life away when actually there is a lot that I can still enjoy even when I'm very sick. And I'm sure you get this as a comic, actually, because people often say this to me as a writer, that, oh, but you wouldn't be who you are without your mental illness. And, you know, doesn't it make you... It makes you a better comedian, Susan. Look at all these brilliant people in the past who've had mental illness. And it's like, well, that I mean, there may be a link between mental illness and the sheer brilliance that you and I obviously have. Mm. But but also, I, I was established in my career before I got sick. And... I didn't need my mental illness to establish me in my career. Actually, I've had to really slow down my career over the past few years and I'm not earning as much. And, you know, I've seen other people who were junior to me go whoosh past me and I've had to sort of come to terms with that. So I'm not sure my mental illness has been the kind of CV enhancing thing that people try to kindly say that it is. But at the same time, the way I've learned to deal with my mental illness has allowed me to experience some things that I would never have done and that I'm so grateful I have experienced. So swimming, for instance, and I've got really into wildlife photography and just the amazing sort of spiritual experiences of, for instance, watching the starlings in a murmuration over Brighton Pier, Mm -hmm. the way they sort of move like a heartbeat in a cloud and um, taking photos of that or taking photos of barn owls or... Um, the other day, I actually had a very exciting nature photography experience, which was I saw a male digger wasp having sex with a fly orchid 
and it's an extremely rare event and it's called pseudo copulation which sounds like a red hot chili pepper song and um and i got to photograph it and everyone is now turning this podcast off but no, that, we're using that for the trailer as well. That's 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 the absolute but, bringer. But this orchid has evolved to look, feel, and smell like a sexy female virgin digger wasp. And the male comes out, and he can see and feel and smell this flower, and he gets all excited and he pounds away on it. And the flower drops its pollen onto the wasp, and then he flies off. And actually, I wouldn't have the got the producers into, no googling. The producers leaving, <laughs> thinking, "Who is this filthy woman talking about plant sex?" But but actually. I wouldn't, I wouldn't even have known a fly could existed if I didn't have a mental illness and I'd been off sick and I'd been trying to find ways of occupying myself. And so, yes, I would rather be sane and be able to have just, you know, whizzed up the career ladder and be all-powerful. But there are things that I can say, my life didn't work out that way, but it's gone a different route that has not been wholly miserable and grey and I have been able to find amazing things as a result of trying to get better that have been pretty cool like orchids having sex with wasps I'm just going to keep repeating that over and over again the best thing the day the day I think my life got better was the day I stopped trying to change the fact I had depression yeah and instead thought well I've got it how am I going to live with this let's see how we can make this a manageable thing let's see how we can do that and it's funny isn't it because actually if you had a physical illness you would have got to that point much earlier. Oh, absolutely. Like, if you'd had your leg cut off, and I know people get annoyed with the broken leg analogy, yes. there's lots of problems with it, but with a physical illness, you have the conversation about how to deal with your new normal much earlier than you do with mental mm-hmm. illness, because you have this hope that suddenly you're going to get better. And maybe you will, but actually it would be much better to learn to live around Yeah, the... and I mean, it's, it's basic things like I stopped I stopped drinking as much, yep. I st- exercising more, yep. I cut out of my life the people that were making me feel shit about myself. Yeah, and you can do that because you're like, I'm too ill to see yes, you. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> I'm very depressed. Yeah, you have to leave now. <laughs> yes. We moved, we actually moved house because a lot of the stress was coming from where we were living. Oh, really? Yes, okay. just, we were in a flat and uh, communal roof we were paying for all I was worried all the time about what would happen uh, okay. so we moved to somewhere where all those stresses were gone so you know we I've I've identified I'm much better now at saying this is what's causing me a problem is this changeable or do I have to do I have to do something about it yeah and in that way and I've got a very understanding partner who understands Which? I need to do the Tesco shop on a Thursday and I need to arrive and I need to know what's in it and I need to know what I'm having for my dinner. Do you not find, I find that sort of, I don't particularly like talking about my, my partner and, and stuff, but one thing I would say is unconditional love is amazing. And yes. actually the, the support of a partner and so many people who I talk to who have mental health problems talk about this, that they mu- I've realised how much of love is unconditional because my illness means that a lot of the time I'm quite unlovable and mm-hmm. my partner has stuck with me and he's clearly not just along for sort of a fun ride anymore. Yeah. And that's... He's not just along for the wasp sex. <laughs> exactly, I promised he's... him wasp sex. <laughs> he's there for more. I think it's someone came up to my wife in the toilets of a club once that I was performing in and said, because you're so lucky, it must be a laugh a minute living with Susan. <laughs> and I think she was just, she couldn't, the woman didn't understand why my wife was laughing so much <laughs> because it's the, the it's as far away from fun yeah, as you can imagine. Absolutely, yeah. And I'd say that about living with any comedian, but specifically one that has depression and anxiety, mm. it's it's hellish. Mm. I make her choose what she's having for dinner before we go to a restaurant, and oh. she can't. She's not allowed to change it because that upsets oh. me. And she's not allowed to have the special because only a only a mad person has the special. That's just been added at the last minute. I think it's really important if you have a partner, if you're the per- if you're the partner, and your other half is the one with the mental illness, for you to be able to say, this is really hard, I'm finding this really hard. Like My partner has actually had um, his own psychiatric and psychological help as a result of my illness. I mean, ah. he's had pre-existing mental health problems, so he understands. In fact, we got written up by one diary piece. It's like Mr and Mrs Depression, which I found hilarious. Like, what oh, a thing to bring us together. <laughs> oh, lovely. I, love, I look forward to seeing it. Royal Ascot with yes. your sashes on. With little hats. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> it's just us, the depression. With the morning, sad emojis. Morning, terrible day, isn't it? Um, but, he, yeah, he found my illness in its most acute phase incredibly hard to 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 deal with and I think it's really important for people to be able to say that rather than this kind of oh you must be so caring and wonderful actually it is really hard and 
you know, he's he's lost patience with me at times when I've I've been mad and he's needed people to support him. And I think it's really important for people to be able to be open and honest about that rather than saying, you know, my other half has bipolar or whatever and it's all absolutely fine. You know, my I'm really is, good at caring. My wife is a very lucky woman <laughs> to have snagged a catch like me. <laughs> yeah. um, we're going to have to stop so you can get back to Westminster. Westminster, not wasp. Jeez, I never knew this was going to happen. I, I always like to end the podcast by asking my guest for the, you can say whatever you like, final word about mental illness, about how you're feeling about anything you want. Do you finish off by saying whatever you want about advice to people or anything, tips, whatever you want to say? Okay. Um, I think some advice I would give to people is try to find a bit of exercise that really works for you, particularly something that's outdoor. Um, and don't make it so much of a regime that you start beating yourself up when you're not doing it. But just see it as something that's going to really enrich your life and your mind because there's a lot of evidence that exercising in the outdoors can really help, not cure, but help your mental illness. And for me, that's been the single biggest thing in all of my treatment for mental illness is getting outdoors and watching wasps having sex. There we go. Got it in now, one last time. So, Isabel, if people want to know more about you, which <laughs> after the constant references to wasps, <laughs> I doubt. Um, are you on uh, some form of social media if people wishes to catch up with I what am, you're doing? I am. I'm on, I'm on Twitter as at Isabel Hardman and yes. on Instagram as at Isabel.Hardman. Oh, she changed it up there. Mm. Whoop, whoop. Yeah. Changed it up. <laughs> wow. I'm Susan Kalman on Twitter and official Susan Kalman on Instagram. And I'm under official. A f- official Susan Kalman. Because when I did Strictly, everyone else had official Debbie McGee. And I thought, I better do that then. Even <laughs> though I don't, I don't think anyone else is going to be the unofficial Susan Kalman, do you? I'm totally going to go home and set up that account. Though. <laughs> the unofficial, unofficial Susan Kalman, where it's just pictures of, of wasps. Um, thanks very much, Isabel. It's been lovely. Thank you very much Thank indeed. You. Now go back and learn what's happening with the country. Yep, I will do. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Mrs Brightside. If you like the show, why not subscribe? We're available everywhere you can download podcasts. And if you've already subscribed, why not tell a friend? Next week, I'll be talking to... The glorious Nick Helm. So I thought that by the time I got to Edinburgh, I'd be all fixed. You know, oh, I'll be ready to write a show. This show's about mental health. My show's called Phoenix from the Flames. My show is about me coming back to stand-up and coming back to uh, Edinburgh and coming back to being like, yeah, I'm back. I'm, my, my brain is working again and all this. And the whole process of writing the show has been absolutely... I've said I've, I'm, I'm so open on stage, I feel like I could burst into tears at any point. Susan Kalman's Mrs Brightside is hosted, appropriately enough, by me, Susan Kalman. The producer is Benjamin Sutton and is a BBC Studios production for Acast. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.